0: Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Fully Convinced by Pastor Sean Wood. The Gospels tell us of a man that was by a pool. There was a pool in Jerusalem and something amazing used to happen to that pool at times. Every now and again an angel apparently would come down and stir that pool. The rumour was the first one in, would receive healing And people lined the banks of this pool Waiting for the angel to come down and stir Jesus comes to a man that's been there for some years And he says to this man That's sitting by the pool He says Do you want to be made well? And the answer The man gives is He says, sir He says, I've been here for many years And when the pool stirred, I'm the furthest away No one gives me a hand How many people know that's not the question Jesus asked him? And sometimes faith looks like forgetting about the pool and having a look at the one that's standing right in front of you. Jesus never asked him, did he want to lift to the pool? Jesus never asked him, when was the last time the pool was stirred? That's not what Jesus asked him. Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? And Maybe for some of us, there's people sitting here this morning that need to answer that question. Do I want to be made well? And get our eyes off the pool. Let's pray as we come around God's word. Father, I thank you that all things are possible for you. This morning I pray that eyes would be opened and hearts would be opened, and ready to receive your word in Jesus' name this morning. Amen and amen. Now, the truth is, you can take the boy out of Tasmania, but you can't take the Tasmania out of the boy. And I was thinking this week, because we're almost back into football season. Oh, sorry, let me, let me interpret that for those who don't really know how to interpret. Football is a game where we kick the ball and it's illegal to throw it. That's, that's real football. So for everybody in Queensland, they're going, this guy's talking Hebrew. But uh, I remember AFL, and as I said last week, uh, one of the most hated clubs in AFL is Collingwood. I mean, you, are, you know when you're a Collingwood supporter, when you get up in the morning and you brush your tooth. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that from Queensland. This... But I, I found something interesting with people who support AFL. I support the West Coast Eagles and they're all the way over in WA. And People always ask me, how did you come to follow them? I thought, well, I got sick of all the ones, all the crazy nuts in for the Melbourne team, so I went for a different team. And uh, I even had my boys convinced when I played football, I've got a West Coast Eagles Guernsey that sits in the drawer at home. I haven't worn it for some time, for good reason. But uh, I even had my boys convinced that I played professional AFL for West Coast Eagles. So, you know, you can you, you, can, you can get them to believe anything, eh, amen? Yeah, that's not professional. That's not professional. No. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I did play for a club called Perth, so I guess there's a link to them and the West Coast Eagles, but that's, that's beside the point. I, I, I noticed something, though. I, I noticed there's, uh, that we have... In AFL, we have what we call fans and supporters. But we also have what we call members. Now, fans and supporters, they'll turn up when, when the team's going well. I, I remember when, uh, in Tasmania, Hawthorne became... Apparently, we adopted Hawthorne. I don't know why we could have adopted a better team than Hawthorne. But apparently, we adopted Hawthorne and they started playing games. And all of a sudden, we had 20,000 Hawthorne supporters in Tasmania. Like, where did these guys come from? It's like, Hawthorne, really? But it's, it's amazing how the supporters would come out. They hardly lost a game in Aurora Stadium. And, and these guys, would, they would don the colours, they would paint their faces. They would yell from the sidelines. But they were, you know, when the chips were down and Hawthorne was losing, you couldn't find them. But then there's members. These are the guys that have Said, you know what, this is my club, I don't care what success, I don't care where they are on the success ratio, these guys are my club, I'm going to turn up to every game no matter what the results. Uh, uh, These guys have got their own stand. you know when you go to an AFL game, there's a place called the Members Stand. For those that have signed up, they've paid their money, they wear the colours no matter what and uh, just like AFL, I've I've began to realise that Jesus has fans and he also has members. The question I have for everybody here this morning is, are you a fan or are you a a member? Well, to put it in the terms of Romans chapter 4, what's it going to take for you to come to the position of being fully convinced? We've been journeying our way through the book of Romans. We're going to recap a little bit from... From last week, we've been, as we've been working our way through the book of Romans ever so slowly, we've, we've began to realise that what Paul is actually doing here is he's unpacking the gospel message. And uh, what I love about the gospel is uh, it draws a line in the sand. You see, these guys, for them, for the apostles, for the first church, it, it drew a line in the sand. You listen to their speech. Now, now Paul, when he confronts Peter over being a hypocrite, uh, Paul confronts him not over being a hypocrite, not anything to do with the old covenant, He confronts him and says, your behavior is not in accordance with the gospel. It's not in accordance with the gospel. It drew a line in the sand and it says, this is the life that we now live. And this is what I love about the gospel, it draws a line in the sand in our lives and in our hearts and really there's, there's either black or there's white, you're either, you're either on the team or you're off the team, you're either, you're either in for Jesus or you're out, but there's a, there's a lot of people that say, I support Jesus, but it doesn't look like it in their life. Recently, a couple of years ago, uh, I don't know who has the time to do these surveys, but the national survey was released and a lot of church leaders hit the skids because they're like, this is is dramatically bad news for the church. What had actually happened is, uh, I can't remember the exact percentages, but somewhere around 60% of Australia used to identify as Christian. But then the last survey shocked the world (laughs) and it came out and said, you know what, 45% put their hand up and said, we now identify as Christian. Leaders across the nation said, we've got a problem. 20% of the people have left church and they're not identifying as Christian. But if you actually went through the rest of the survey, a very interesting thing happened. You go through the rest of the survey, the amount of people that said, I attend church regularly, that never dropped. And there were other indicators in the survey that said, you know what? Those 45%, they're the ones that put their hands up no matter what. They're the members. (laughs) They say, well, we're here thick and thin. The other 20% that we found, the other 20% are what we call nominal. They put their hand up and you said, you know what? We've always said we identify as Christian, but the truth is we hardly ever go to church. The truth is we never really pick our Bibles up. Truth is I couldn't tell you who Jesus Christ really is. And so they, for the first time, that 20% of people put their hand up and said, you know what? We're going to stop kidding ourselves and kidding everybody else here, and say, you know what, we don't align with being Christian. And praise God, they did that because it means we can reach them now. But one thing the gospel will do is it draws a line in your life and it draws a line in your heart to the point where you you don't have any grey area left anymore. Jesus is in the business of knocking people off the fence. You read the gospels; you are in or you are out. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. No deciding to come with me when things are good. And as I wrote this morning, you've got to be careful about going with the crowds because don't ever forget that it was the crowds that cried, Hosanna in the highest as he rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. And those same crowds, five days later, were yelling, crucify him. So be careful going with the crowds. I want to ask everybody here this morning, what would it take for you to cross that line if you're not? A, and the other question is, are you across that line? Are you to the point where you say, I'm in no matter what, Jesus? And we had a brief look at faith last week because as we we're unpacking the gospel, we understand that there's two enormously important words. The first word is righteousness. Now, righteousness is a positional word. It speaks about our position before God. Once upon a time, uh, for a very long time, man was out of position with God. The message of the gospel is this. Do you know the message of the gospel? Do you know preaching the gospel is not you running around to everybody telling them they either need to turn or they're going to burn. That's not preaching the gospel. Running around telling everybody that they deserve to go to hell, that's not actually the gospel. Yes? Yes? That is the consequences for those who choose that for their own life. You can't get away from that. The message of the gospel is this, God loved you so much that what you couldn't do, he came and did. That's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is, as we learned last week, God justifies the ungodly. God's not waiting for you to clean your life up. We had a look at the example of Abraham. Everyone thinks that Abraham was this perfect vessel. <laughs> he was a moon worshipper when God called him. That's, that's not what it is. But we see that righteousness is a position before God where there's nothing between you and God. And so the, the Pharisees and the religious people, they stand up and the Catholics, some Catholics today will tell you the only way you can get to God is by what you do. Uh, now now righteousness is how many times you go to church or or maybe how much money you give or or maybe how many hail marys you you can say all the hail marys you like mary's got nothing to do with it but then if that wasn't confusing enough then along comes a guy by the name of martin luther and he had a light globe moment someone flicked a switch for him when he read Romans one seventeen, and he finally got it. But for a long time, Martin Luther said, no, 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 righteousness looks like this. Uh, God makes us righteous when he saves us, he cleans us up. But then we have to maintain that righteousness. That's what Martin Luther said. And somebody said to Martin Luther one day, he said, Martin, how much do you love God? Martin said, love him. He says, I loathe him for putting this burden on me that I've got to maintain this. A guy that ended up spending six hours in confessional. Why? Because he stood on the rim of the human heart and realised this goes on forever. I can't plug this black hole. Or as, as one preacher in America said, if sin was blue, we'd all be Smurfs. But then Paul comes, you've got to remember Paul was a religious guy. Paul comes and he says, you guys have got it all wrong. It's not, you don't earn this position before God. And it's not about God gives it to you and then you've got to maintain it. No. Paul says, no. no, he gives it to you for free. That's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is God credits or counts or reckons righteousness to those who believe. That's why faith is so important. Faith is enormously important. Righteousness on God's part is by grace, righteousness on your part is by faith. And last week we looked at faith in kind of three stages. It's kind of important that we recap briefly. First stage does anybody remember what the first stage was? Thank you all for listening. first stage of faith is kind of like realisation. It's where we receive information. It's kind of like, imagine this for a moment. Imagine somebody puts a million dollars in your bank account right now. Two things are needed for you to be able to access that. First of all, somebody needs to tell you that it's there. That's why we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel to people. We tell people the wonderful news and the beautiful truth of Jesus. Why? Because they don't know it's there. They don't know it's available. They don't even, some of them don't even know they've got a problem with God in the first place. That's why we have the first three chapters of Romans. So realisation is where uh, most men will probably tune out now. It's where we hear and listen And then, of course, after realisation, it's where information comes in. Then we move to a point of visualisation. Remember how that was for Abraham? It says in Genesis 15, the first place we see the word believe. uh, Genesis 15, it says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. So there's the realisation. The second part is the visualisation. God takes him outside and says, look up to the stars. And if you can number them, that's how many descendants. It's a visualisation. It's where information becomes revelation. It's where Jesus is no longer a saviour, Jesus is my saviour. It's where it becomes personal. But many people stay in realisation and visualisation and never move to expression. That's, this is the most important part. This is the part today we're going to talk about. If you're sitting here going, what's James on about when he says, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Uh, are, are we saved by deeds? Is my righteousness a court? No, no, no. We've got it all around the wrong way. Paul says, you're not, you don't do all of this stuff to earn God's love or to earn a, a righteous position before God. You do all of that stuff from that position. Or let me begin today's verses with chapter 4, verse 13. I want to talk this morning about that expression part, and we're going to use the example of Abraham. But verse 13, it says, For the promise... It says that the promise, we'll cover that in a moment, to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Let me ask everybody a question here. Let's let's put Abraham aside for a moment. Everybody that was here on Wednesday night should be able to answer this question. What is the promise to us in the New Testament? Truth is you might get a variety of answers to that and they'd all be correct. Some people might say well the promise to us is salvation. That's correct. Uh, the promise to us is eternal life. That's correct. The promise to us is the holy spirit. That's correct. They are promises that exist underneath an overarching promise. Does anybody know what the promise of the New Testament is? It's God. What better promise could you have? In Jeremiah 31 verse 31, God says that he's going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel. That's what he says. I'm going to make a new covenant, says the Lord, with the house of Israel. I'm going to write my laws on their minds. I'm going to write my laws on their heart. What does that mean? He's going to internalize. It's, it's about a revealing of himself and his ways to us personally. I'm going to put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. He goes on and says, nobody will teach their neighbor saying, know the Lord. That's how it used to be. The only people that knew the Lord under the old covenant were the priests. He says, nobody's going to teach their neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You can know God. The word know is used in five different contexts throughout the Bible. That word know is an intimate fellowship, relational knowledge of someone. You have that kind of knowledge, probably about your spouse if you were married. That's the kind of knowledge God goes on and finishes that statement with something very beautiful. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. What's the promise of the New Testament? God. There's enormous benefits that come with that. And when God makes promises, both in the Hebrew, but particularly in the Greek, uh, the subject matter is not the promise, but what is being promised. So uh, the, tra- the, the translators have done us quite well here. But what they're saying is, uh, the translator says, for example, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Greek would sound like this, the promised Holy Spirit. The subject is what has been promised. Because if you're going to have faith here this morning, you need to have faith in the promises of God. That's what you can stand on. The promise, we're going to unpack more of what the promise of the New Testament and the New Covenant is, but it looks basically like this. The best way to understand it between the difference is between a business relationship with God and a relational relationship with God. Let me explain what that means. You might at any point in time have many people in your house. And let's say, let's say somebody's living in your house and they're, and they're paying rent. They're there as a business relationship. They're there because they pay rent. If they fail to pay rent, or if you fail to provide what they need, some there's going to be a parting in the relationship. It's a business relationship. It's uh, we have this position with each other based upon you do this and I do that. That's a lot of what the New, the Old Testament was like. A lot of it was a business relationship. God will do this. You will have to do this. That's the kind of relationship. The promise in the the promise in the New Testament is that we have a family relationship with God. If you're here Wednesday night, I'll I'll explain what that looks like. Jesus said two words in Matthew chapter 6 that were absolute heresy in his day to the religious people. And those two words were, our Father. Jesus says, because his disciples say, teach us to pray. Jesus says, you know, when you pray... Don't think you will be heard. Don't pray like the pagans do who think they will be heard by their many babblings or their empty words. They think the basis that God's going to hear them is a business relationship. The more I say, the more I pray, the more fancy words I use. I've heard heard some people that can pray in old King James. For thou art, where art, and how art, and all the that's. Doesn't have any more effect than a two-year-old child that says, help me, Jesus. It that's, that's, <laughs> doesn't have any more effect than that. And Jesus says, no, no, no. And, and the reason is, Jesus says, no, no, when you pray, the basis that you think that you have to be heard before God is when you pray, you say, our Father. Why? Because you have a position that the pagans don't have. If anybody else barred Jesus had to said that, they would have stoned him on the spot. Our Father. The promise of the New Testament is this, friends. You no, longer, you no longer relate to God on a business relationship. And the argument that Paul makes from Abraham is nobody ever did. They say, no, no, no. Abraham had a righteousness. Abraham was justified because look how perfect he was. What? The guy that lied about who Sarah was Twice the guy that decided he was going to rush the promise of God and so we have Ishmael and we have the Ishmaelites and we have Islam. Interesting. Now Paul goes on and says, verse 14, for if the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs of faith is null and void, promise is void. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Here's the verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. The promise depends upon faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. So that the promise may rest on grace. It depends upon faith. It doesn't depend on what you do. It doesn't depend on how good you are. It doesn't depend on how you clean up your act. That's God's job. If you're sitting here this morning going, well, if God, unjust- if God justifies the ungodly, that means I can walk out of here today, I can just do whatever I want, God's going to continue to justify me. If that's you this morning, please come back when we go through Romans 6. Where Paul says, you guys say, shall we go on sinning The grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. Loves well, I was answering his own questions, nobody else would answer them. By no means. What Paul says is, you've completely misunderstood grace. If you knew the depths of the love of God, if you knew the depths of the grace of God, you wouldn't even be asking that question. That's what Paul says. Let's read on and have a look at the example that comes to us from Abraham. If you come down to verse 17, it says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Anyone ever notice how the promises that God makes... how? Their fulfilment lies in the spiritual. Anybody ever notice that? Anybody know that Abraham didn't see a multiple amount of descendants while he was here on earth? Anybody ever... God says, I'll take you to a promised land. I'll take you to your own land. He lived in a tent all his life. Anybody ever know that God's always looking outside? As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom you believed. He gives life to the dead and he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham was a man that lived his life in the full knowledge and we should be too. And I believe there is a call of God amongst the churches that we live our lives in full recognition that we serve and are in relationship with the God of the supernatural. How did this look like? We're going to look at it in a moment. We're going to look at an example from Abraham's life. But how did this in the God whom he believed who gives life to the dead (laughs) and calls into existence the things that do not exist? I need to digress for a moment and press the pause button. The only place in any part of scripture where it says calls into existence the things that do not exist, that only pertains to God. You don't have that power. You cannot call your new Mercedes into existence. You cannot call your new house into existence. You can't do it. God is the only one that can do that. But Abraham lived his life from a posture that fully understood this. Where do we see the example of this? Isaac. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. You see, finally, finally God uh, uh, fulfills his promise. Uh, just, just put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a moment. I, I was thinking about this week, this week. Just put yourself in Abraham's shoes. He has looked and yearned for the, for the promise of God for many years. Finally, he receives Isaac. My boys need to be paying attention here this morning, by the way. Finally, he receives Isaac and God says to him, now take the promise up the mountain and sacrifice him. How many people are wondering, Abraham's probably going, holy cannoli. You just just gave me. Do you know, we don't actually read of any reasoning in Abraham. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't hesitate. But actually, Scripture's pretty clear that he didn't hesitate. Because the next words we read is that Abraham rose early. He didn't hold a prayer meeting. He didn't call the elders. God's told me to do something. Hebrews 11 gives us a little bit of insight into what he was thinking. It says, Abraham reasoned within himself that if need be, God was able to raise the dead. What's Abraham saying? I'll go up the mountain. I don't understand it. I don't know why God would ask me to do this, but you know what? He can raise the dead anyway, so it doesn't matter. And we understand that the whole reason that God had asked him to take Isaac up the mountain was God wanted to make sure that Isaac didn't have the place in Abraham's heart that God should have had. I wonder this morning, as we're talking about the expression of faith, are there Isaacs in your heart? Are there things in your life, are there things in your heart that take the place that belongs to God? Maybe some people here need to take a walk up a mountain. Careful, if you don't walk up there, God will ask you to walk up there, one way or another. I love these next verses. Causing into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope. Okay, everybody's thinking Paul's gone mad here. Uh, you, you're contradicting yourself, Paul, but he's not. In hope, he hoped against hope. And what this means is he, he, Abraham makes an enormous leap from the security of what he can see to the security that can be found in God. Yes, there's two kinds of hope. Uh, A hope that is based on what you can see, a worldly kind of hope. Uh, I want to give everybody in this room a heads up. If you are anchoring your hope in anything in this world or anybody for that matter in this world, you may be vastly disappointed. Abraham had a hope that transcended here. His whole life was orientated in a completely different place than here. Hebrews 11 says that they looking for a city, a a heavenly city, they live their life here orientated somewhere else and the writer to the Hebrews asks us to do exactly the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 6, he asks us to anchor our souls. This hope is like an anchor that reaches beyond the curtain, says the writer to the Hebrews. And, and the reason he says that is uh, he's just gone through telling us about wayward Israel. Uh, Israel was in the wilderness and they perished in the wilderness. Why? Why did, what stopped all but two of them going into the promised land? What was the one thing that stopped him? It was unbelief. Unbelief. Later on, he says, what we covered last week, we are not of those who shrink back. Do you know there's some enormously strong currents in this world? There's some enormously strong currents that want to pull you off course and the writer of the Hebrews says, if you want to stop drifting, if you want to stop wavering, then throw your anchor beyond the curtain and place your hope. What's that hope? The hope that we have is that Jesus has torn down the veils and he has gone into the presence and the hope we have is that he's gone before us and made the way and we can have the same. You can experience the fullness of a fellowship and a relationship with God right here, right now. That's the hope that we have. And it orientated the entire of Abraham's life. That's why he spent as long as he did in tents. He didn't care. He didn't care whether he lived in tents. He didn't care. He was going somewhere else and that place wasn't here. Completely changed the expression of his faith. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. What's that mean? It means that if you looked at man's hope, he had no hope. <laughs> he was 90, uh, what was Sarah, 99? And he was bordering on 100. Um, it's not natural to father children at that age. There was no hope. But let's read on because this might apply to some of us. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He did not weaken in faith when he considered the obstacles. There are people in this room, I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I bet you I would get some. How many people here would say, I'm facing some obstacles in my life right now? The hands are gone up anyway. You might be be facing health obstacles, you might be facing relational obstacles, you might be facing financial obstacles, but he wasn't weakened in faith. Why? Because his focus wasn't on the obstacles. What's what's a good example of this? You remember Peter? Poor old Peter, he cops the flogging, doesn't he? Him and Thomas. Uh, But Peter sees Jesus walking out on the water. And they can't believe it. And they say, Peter says, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come to you. So Jesus says, well, out you come then. So Peter gets out of the boat and everything was going fine, scripture tells us, until what? Peter saw the wind and he became afraid. Uh, If you're here in May, we're going to be doing a a series called Overcomers Month, speaking about overcoming failure, overcoming temptation, overcoming doubt, and overcoming fear. Why? Many people sit outside the outer court. Many people sit just outside the presence of God because they're too afraid. Too afraid to get out of the boat. Too afraid of the wind and the waves. For Abraham, he didn't weaken in faith because he was focused and considered God, not the obstacles. How many people here would like to know how to strengthen their faith? I would. Uh, when we, First of all, if you want more faith at any one of these, if you want more faith in the expression, if you want more revelation from God and more faith at the visualisation stage, you, you've got to put more in at the realisation stage. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by... Okay, we're getting spiritual by the moment. Okay, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It all begins here. It begins by getting into the Bible. It begins by listening to messages. It begins by reading. Do whatever you've got to do to get into the Word of God. This is why we're plugging life groups this week. Get into a life group. Get connected. Talk about the Word of God. Pray for each other. This is where it's important. But to strengthen your faith, Listen to this, verse verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. Nothing made him waver. Uh, He didn't consider or waver, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And if you have a look at Abraham's example, uh, uh, he grew strong in faith. How do you grow strong in faith? The same way uh, you get muscles like me. I'm sure I heard an amen or so there, but... (laughs) It's the same way with our muscles. How how do our muscles grow stronger? By using them, by applying resistance. All weight training is the art of applying resistance to muscles. And the more you use them and the more you apply resistance and the more they're tested and the more they're stretched The older you get, the easier it is to stretch them and pull them. The more they grow, and so it is with your faith. And so I would encourage everybody here this morning that if you want to grow stronger in faith, if you want more at the expression level, then get out and use your faith. Francis Chan, uh, he speaks a beautiful message about moving in the Spirit of God because this, this is the in thing today. This, these, these are like the in words, moving in the Spirit of God. I really appreciated his, his message. He says, you know, he says, uh, moving in the Spirit of God might mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. He said, but here's what it meant for me in church life. He says, I found that the supernatural increased in my life when I was stepping out in faith. And he gives a few examples. He says, you know, he says, one example was... Um, he says, we had this fundraiser that we were running, but he says, we'd organize this enormous event for the homeless. He says, and it was going to cost just over a million dollars. And he says, we're two days out, <laughs> and we had $200,000. And he says, as a church, he says, we came together and we prayed. And as churches in the city, we came together and prayed. And he said, you know, just over a million dollars came in in the next two days. And he said, we really had a heart for the homeless, so we decided we were going to feed the homeless every week. Had this huge, he, said, it was, he said, it was on the scale that you wouldn't believe. He says, we were feeding you know, hundreds of people every week in our, in our homeless kitchen. <laughs> he said, you got, he said, "You got no idea, he says, the amount of food that takes, he says. And we, he says, one week, he says, we... Uh, w- we opened the kitchen on a Friday, he says, and he says, one of the chefs comes out to me on a Thursday and he says, <laughs> he says, we've got no meat. And Francis is like, what do you mean we've got no meat? We've got to, we got to run this kitchen tomorrow. We've got all this. He says, we've got no meat. He says, so we prayed. <laughs> he says, two hours later, he says, the local supermarket rang us and said, listen, we just had a power outage, blew the fuses and has blown our fridges. <laughs> uh, he, c- 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 could you use some meat? Waymaker. Miracle worker. You know, as individuals and as a church, if we want to grow in our faith, we've got to exercise it. Um, I think it was Moody. I think it may have been Moody. No, it may not have been Moody. Was it Moody that ran the orphanage? Mueller. Mueller. Thank you for those scholars in our midst. George Mueller ran an orphanage and never asked a cent from a single person and never went without. He had bakers knocking on the door. He lived by faith. I have a question this morning. We're going to come around the table of the Lord in a moment. I ask Liz to come and prepare to take us around the table of the Lord this morning. But I have a question this morning. Uh, Are you a fan or are you a member? Is your faith stuck in realisation and visualisation? Or are you living and expressing what it is that you believe because there's actually no middle ground? James says, you guys tell me you've got faith. Let me see it. I encourage everybody here this morning as we come around the table of the Lord to reflect on that question. Are you a fan or are you a member? I'm going to pray as Liz comes up. Father, this morning as we come around the table... Our heart is to reflect upon Christ, but I pray that that reflection would be inward for each one of us. I pray that your word would nestle in our hearts. We pray, Lord, for revelation. We pray for faith to grow. We pray for the gospel to not only be spoken, but to be lived in our lives in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast.